The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I, I've, as you heard, I've participated in a lot of longer-term programs here at IMC and also at Spirit Rock. And in those programs, um, there have been, <clears throat> excuse me, there's been some study of the suttas. Um, so these are the the texts that have come down to us um, uh, since approximately the first century. They were transmitted orally. Um, monks would memorize them for, for about five centuries. They'd memorize them and teach them to others. And then about the first century, they started to be written down. So we're really fortunate these days to have had some really amazing translations into English, um, availability of these things online, and also here at IMC through the Sati Center where there are sutta classes. And I have a lot of respect for the scholars who have translated and studied these texts and really deeply understand them. And I'm just at the beginning of my understanding of them, so I'm not a scholar and I'm not an expert. But what I've noticed is that when I've read these, they've provided some inspiration. And something about the way they're written, maybe because they were part of an oral tradition, you know, they have uh, certain phrases are repeated multiple times, and the language has, even in English, a certain rhythmicity that sticks in the mind. So um, there are passages that have just stuck with me. You know, maybe they've stuck with me for a couple of years, and then I'm I'm sitting, and an understanding of them pops up, and the phrase resonates in the mind. So um, one particular text that I keep coming back to over and over for some reason is um, the second uh, sutta in this middle-length Discourses of the Buddha. And uh, the name of it was translated uh, by Bhikkhu Bodhi in that book as All the Taints and was translated as All the Fermentations by another monk who's done a lot of translation and study, Tanisaru Bhikkhu, um, who's otherwise known as Tan Jeff around here. Um, And I've also enjoyed reading his translations. So these words, taints and fermentations, aren't used a whole lot in everyday speech. Um, So I started by looking them up in the dictionary. And it was interesting to me to read an archaic definition of fermentation. And that was the word agitation. And then taints um, had a couple definitions. When it's used as a noun, it's defined as a trace of a bad or undesirable quality or substance. And when used as a verb, to contaminate or pollute something. So this is interesting. You know, they're studying uh, what, what are things that agitate the mind or disturb the mind or take it away from freedom. And what are the things that pollute and contaminate or are unhelpful in the mind. So the aim of this text, in my initial understanding of it, seemed to be that the Buddha was instructing the monks on how to stay focused in their practice, Um, really giving them the best chance of reaching the goal of ultimate liberation from suffering. So it it instructs them in how to avoid getting stirred up with undesirable states, what kinds of 
agitation or contamination agitates the mind and how to keep oneself free of those kinds of distractions, agitations and pollutions. In other words, how to cultivate and sustain healthy, mindful states. So where my mind went with this is, what might this tell us about how to live sustainably with each other on this planet? There's a book in my office that I've had for many years, and I love the title, and it, it popped up as I studied this also. How You Do Anything is How You Do Everything. And I, these days in my practice, I think of that as how you are with anything is how you are with everything. So what if agitated, contaminated states of mind lead to an agitated human population and a polluted planet? The way we treat ourselves as individuals, the way we are with our own minds, is in many ways inseparable from the ways we are with each other and everything else. So how many people do you know right now that are talking about how hard it is for them to be with the current climate of political divisiveness, social injustice, you know, massive destruction in the environment? Some people have told me they've stopped watching the news in order not to get caught up in suffering over all of it. Or, you know, other people have told me about despair, um, immobility, overwhelm. As they witness man-made fires destroying huge swaths of land, worsening hurricanes every year, you know, more intense hurricanes destroying entire um, islands. Plastic pollution in the ocean and on the land air and water that are degrading, and species extinction. Internal suffering is happening, and external suffering is increasing. So a lot of people are wondering how to uh, engage in effective action about this. So this sutta may provide inspiration for how we can be sustainably free of agitation and pollution internally. And by the way, agitation, I think any disturbance, anything in the mind that keeps you from feeling free of suffering. That's how I'm going to interpret it. Um, And also freeing us up for how can we be skillful in the world externally. So the sutta starts off with the Buddha directing uh, his comments to the monks. He says, monks, and he, when he's sure he's got their attention, <laughs> um, he sa- the Blessed One said, monks, the ending of the fermentations is for one who knows and sees, I tell you, not for one who does not know and does not see. For one who knows and sees what? Appropriate attention and inappropriate attention. When a monk attends inappropriately, arisen fermentations arise, and arisen fermentations increase. When a monk attends appropriately, unarisen fermentations do not arise, and arisen fermentations are abandoned. So just to say that in more everyday language. The ending of suffering 
the ending of all these undesirable states of mind that keep you in stress and struggle and disturb your meditation practice, your relationships, your life, the well-being of this planet can come your way if you know and see the difference between paying attention appropriately and paying attention inappropriately. You'll continue to suffer if you don't know this and if you don't see this. Okay, this is really fundamental. So this phrase, knows and sees, is making a key point. In my experience, it's not talking about, yeah, I heard somewhere or, you know, I read it somewhere. It's talking about having practiced deeply enough having really lived through the consequences of your actions over and over or in a deep enough way to completely get it, to have an understanding in one's bones um, on all levels of heart, mind, and body so completely that you can't forget and you can't unknow it. As a result, you have vision or foresight. You're able to see where something is headed before you even take a step. So I don't doubt that everyone in this room has had some experiences in your life or in your meditation practice where you've been there and done that so completely that you know not even to start with something. You know consequences definitely will not be helpful, so you just don't do certain things anymore. So I'll give you some everyday examples of knowing and seeing this fundamental thing. So some people have learned through experience that caffeine has unwanted effects on them. Anybody in this room resemble that remark? Okay. Um, at, you know, maybe you've tried to prop up your sagging energy level. You know, your energy drops. You think, I'll just have a cup of coffee or tea or, you know, soda. And... Um, when you first try it and you're tired, um, at first it seems to offer this little spike in energy, this lift. But the longer you rely on it, day after day, after that brief lift, there's a crash. Caffeine is known to interfere with normal sleep patterns. And so a caffeine drinker who's sensitive like this becomes more and more exhausted as they drink caffeine over time. And it's a downward spiral. More caffeine, more fatigue, over and over again. Uh, Finally, (laughs) they learn, I learned, (laughs) that caffeine is part of the problem. And one gets so thoroughly sick of being exhausted, they, they stop drinking caffeine and start looking for other ways to rest and refresh the body. If you're offered a caffeine beverage or you're tempted to drink one, you know the consequences so completely in an embodied way that you can see the whole tiring cycle before you act and you're not tempted to start up again. That's a kind of knowing and seeing on an everyday level. A recovered alcoholic who lost jobs, relationships, health, maybe even nearly lost their life from drinking before getting sober, who recovers so completely that they're sober for the rest of their lives, knows and sees that alcohol leads to agitation, disturbance in the mind and in life, and contamination of one's mental state, bad consequences for oneself and others around them. A meditator who's seen over and over again that their life goes better when they 
are committed to the practice, when they meditate every day, when they practice mindfulness throughout the day, uh, can get to a place of knowing and seeing this so completely that their life goes better on and off the cushion when they practice, that they're starting to know and see on a, a very basic level if they pay appropriate attention to their mind state again and again and again and again, it leads to less suffering and more freedom. So when people in these examples did not know and did not see, they started drinking caffeine again until they were exhausted again, or they started using alcohol, or they stopped using alcohol only to start up again to yet another DUI or yet another lost job or relationship again. Or they skipped meditation for a period of time until they fell into old, unhelpful habits again. When we're still in the grip of unhelpful conditioned habits and are suffering, we are not knowing and not seeing. So as we unfold in this practice, not knowing and not seeing may get more and more subtle. But short of complete and final liberation from all suffering, There's something about how greed, aversion, and delusion affect the mind that means we are not knowing and we are not seeing. Another example, scientists and a lot of members of this audience and the public have understood that the human body can withstand low levels of contamination in air and water without the person dying. But when human activity loads the air with too many parts per million of various emissions, people who suffer compromised lung function may start dying. And others who had healthy lungs before may become ill. So a couple of weeks ago, the headline in the Washington Post read, Delhi air reaches toxic levels again. And the article reported that the government in India had banned millions of vehicles, uh, private vehicles from the streets, a day after the city recorded its worst air quality in three years. It went on to say that the pungent smelling air was making eyes water, inducing coughing and breathlessness, even for those without respiratory illness. Uh, the, The city declared a public health emergency and schools were shut down. NPR reported that on November 2nd, 21 of the 37 air quality monitoring stations in Delhi registered in the severe category. Maybe you saw photos of this in the news. Illustrating what they meant, they said that the air quality index, which is an international metric used by public health officials, is that any reading above an air quality index of 100 is considered unhealthy. And in Delhi that week, it reached over 900. At those levels, there's the potential for the air to cause respiratory illness. Um, Research analyzing the sources of Delhi's air pollution reveals that about a third of the pollution is from emissions from poorly regulated industries like factories, brick kilns, cement mixers. Another third is from vehicle emissions. And another top contributor is smoke from kitchens in low-income areas or rural areas, dust from construction. And then in the winter, what intensifies this 
to unhealthy levels is that the farmers uh, set fire to the stubble of their crops and there's a 40% spike in air pollution. Now, during this crisis, India's Minister for Health and Family Welfare, Science and Technology, Earth Sciences, tweeted that eating carrots would help. (laughs) So, wow. Um, This resulted in a lot of mocking tweets in response, but also groups organizing to urge the government to act Thousands of people gathered at one of the national monuments to protest government inaction. So, long story short, we may be able to conclude from this that some individuals know and see, know, really know and see, that air pollution is health-threatening. Too many parts per million and they're sick. Some do not know and see it. Um, So there's this problem of organizing people um, to a level to get the government to take action. So in the passage of the sutta I read to you before, the Buddha went on to say, for one who knows and sees what? Appropriate attention and inappropriate attention. So again, we're down to fundamentals. When a monk attends inappropriately, arisen fermentations arise. Excuse me, unarisen fermentations arise. And arisen fermentations increase. When a monk attends appropriately, unarisen fermentations do not arise, and arisen fermentations are abandoned. So if someone who suffers from alcoholism attends inappropriately, they walk down the alcohol aisle of a store, see their favorite alcohol, and pay attention to it. The urge for it arises again, and once it has arisen, if they pay attention to that and buy it and drink it again, they suffer the consequences. If, on the other hand, the person sees the aisle with the alcohol and pays appropriate attention to seeing the bottles of wine there and knows and sees vividly how it would feel to get another DUI, to lose their job or relationship or their health, knows and sees why they stop drinking, its negative effects on them. The craving for alcohol either does not arise, or if it does, the person abandons the urge or lets the craving be there, rides it out until, without acting on it, until it passes. So how might this sutta show us how contaminants in the mind lead to contaminating our relationships and the planet? Taking the example of someone attending inappropriately um, the effects of any action we take may may not be limited to the health effects for that particular individual. So let's take caffeine. Um, people, People who are sensitive to caffeine, drinking it results, it's known to result in more irritability. Um, So someone once told me they think and move faster and they get annoyed that others are not moving at their pace. It makes me wonder if we could correlate the fact, and watch this one, how many stores per square mile sell caffeine with how many people drive in an impatient, hurried way. Now, being irritable with family, friends, and colleagues easily has a negative impact on those relationships, right? Maybe being irritable from a lot of causes contributes to more divisive exchanges around opinions in politics, in in your life. 
So an irritable person not paying appropriate attention to the news might get pulled more easily into irritation at others that don't share their political opinions. Perhaps that irritability leads to more political polarization. Paying attention to the news without paying attention to one's state of mind, a person may not know and see how polarizing views have arisen and will lead to further suffering for yourself and for other people. Um, Another form of inappropriate attention might be the pollution created by drinking and discarding plastic bottles. You know, some are recycled and, you know, some of us are wearing garments from recycled plastic bottles. Um, But multiply the number of plastic bottles an individual uses by the number of people using them, and it accounts for the estimated 22 billion plastic bottles ending up in landfills and incinerators last year. Not all plastic bottles end in landfills. National Geographic reported this year that plastic bottles and plastic caps are the third and fourth most collected plastic trash in the Ocean Conservancy's annual beach cleanups in more than 100 countries. Globally, more than 1 million, this just knocked me out, 1 million plastic bottles are sold every single minute. According to data from Euromonitor International's Global Packaging Trends Report, published in 2017. I'll bet you can come up with examples of paying inappropriate attention or paying appropriate attention from your meditation practice. If you're meditating and you thoroughly know and see how distractions are not going to be helpful, um, you don't pay attention to them when they come up. You let them drift on by. Or if you catch yourself paying attention to something that distracts you, Um, You abandon thinking about it, you stop thinking about it, you let it go. If you're restless and irritable during a sitting and you're paying appropriate attention, you don't leap up off the cushion and and stop meditating to write an email airing your grievances with someone. (laughs) Um, Instead, you you see and you know how the um, restlessness and irritation are kind of poisoning you. And you stay attentive to it, to your state of mind and body. Maybe you can relax and release it even just a little bit. And as a result, you approach people with more wisdom when you get off the cushion. So in this sutta, the Buddha continues that there are taints to be abandoned by seeing. We've already talked a bit about seeing. Some that are to be abandoned by restraining to be abandoned by using, to be abandoned by enduring, to be abandoned by avoiding, to be abandoned by removing, and to be abandoned by developing. So what does that mean? Um, I'll elaborate on that in a few minutes. But first, the sutta tells us, an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person who is not well-versed or disciplined in their dhamma does not discern which ideas are fit for attention and what ideas are unfit for attention. This being so, one does not attend to ideas that are fit for attention and attends instead to ideas that are unfit for attention. And it goes on to describe several categories of ideas unfit for attention. So the first one is the one I'm going to focus on, or continue to focus on. Things such that when one attends to them, the unarisen taint 
of sensual desire arises in one and the arisen taint of sensual desire increases. Uh, The sutta also goes into um, unfit for attention are things that one when one attends to them, the unarisen taints of becoming and ignorance arise and increase. Um, That's beyond the scope of my talk today. I mean, we could spend a whole another several days on those. Um, But for today, I think we've got plenty to consider just about sense desire. So this phrase sensual desire is not meant to refer only to sexual desire, which is an association a lot of people have for the word sensual. Um, But later in the sutta, there's a practice recommended of restraining our use of the six senses, so sense desire in this way. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and the use of our intellect. So this is the sixth sense in Buddhist practice. So in this case, I take the phrase sensual desire to mean excessive desire for and involvement with what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think about in ways that lead to more agitation and contamination of our minds, our relationships, and our natural resources. So let's consider someone negatively affected by the news not paying wise attention to the sense desire for the level of stimulation in the mind um, or interest that arises in seeing images on the news, not paying appropriate attention to the way their mind reacts and the body feels while they're hearing that news, or thinking about or imagining, for example, arguing with someone with whom one disagrees who's on the news. Have you ever had that temptation? Um, you know, this is the slippery slope um, that leads to an increase of sense desire to use our minds in ways that foster divisiveness, maybe. Just as I said, you know, if, if you're negatively affected by caffeine, not paying wise attention to the fatigue in your body and having that desire, that sense desire for some quick energy... Um, then if you're not paying appropriate attention to those sense desires when you see a cup of your favorite beverage, um, when you taste it, when you feel the way it is when it goes down, or you think about or imagine how it would give you some quick energy and you'd be fine, that's the slippery slope that leads to an increase in the sense desire for drinking caffeine. On the other hand, if the person does not get involved with those sense desires... They don't suffer the negative consequences of getting sucked in again and again to unhelpful habits. So this is what's called abandonment by restraining. So what's recommended as worthy of restraining are these six senses. The human habit of getting too involved with desires because we're not restraining has led to plenty of conflict between people, nations, and plenty of pollution. The Buddha continues in the sutta by saying there are forms of agitation and contamination in the mind to be abandoned by using. Using. So, I think mostly he's talking about moderation in using. So he elaborates um, asking the monks to use only the clothing needed to protect the body from the elements. 
So we're not monks, but if you took what's in your closet and cut it in half or maybe a quarter, you'd have used fewer resources, have less to take care of, and have less to preoccupy you. Just that little thing. Um, If you've lived a few decades and you know how stuff in your life just tends to keep building up in your house, it feels exhausting to try and take care of all that stuff. It feels exhausting to downsize, if anybody in the room has tried to downsize. You know, we might have been better off by using less and focusing on the beautiful freedom in the mind from anything that has helped you in meditation practice. Um, If we abandon sense desire by using fewer resources, we might be, and the planet might be better off. So that's a fundamental of recycle, reuse, right? Um, The sutta then covers the forms of agitation and contamination to be abandoned by enduring. So the Buddha encourages the monks to bear the elements. So here, I think he's encouraging them to be less reactive in the mind towards heat, cold, wind, rain, etc., insects. Um, To bear speech that's unpleasant. To bear bodily feelings that are unpleasant or even painful, disagreeable, or distressing. So if we gave up our addiction to sense pleasures, instead of insisting on convenience and comfort all the time, we could endure a lot of things without mental reactivity. We could be content with far less. So I'm sure a lot of people in this room um, don't have the heat up very high in your house during the winter. Because you found you can pile on a few extra clothes and endure a little bit of coolness. You don't need to air condition your house in the summer because you found you can bear with a few hot days. And you use less fuel. Um, If you can endure unpleasant political speech without mental contaminants like hatred, you can instead focus on how to forge relationships that make effective changes. Um, So the next form of abandonment, abandoning by avoiding, avoiding creatures that harm you, natural and man-made stuff that might harm you, bad friends. Um, Taking bad friends as an example, a recovered alcoholic or drug addict learns to avoid certain friends in certain places, uh, activities that lead to uh, the sense desires that lead to drinking or using drugs. Um, Avoiding man-made stuff that can harm you. Maybe you eliminate pesticides from, you know, cleaning your house uh, and house cleaning chemicals that are suspected to cause cancer. Um, Then the sutta discusses forms of agitation and contamination to be abandoned by removing. If there's an arisen uh, uh, thought of sense desire, abandon it, remove it. Do away with it. Annihilate it. Don't tolerate an arisen thought of ill will or cruelty. Don't tolerate arisen, unhelpful, unwholesome states. So for this reason, I, you know, I was perking along in life uh, watching political humor shows. And after a while, I started to feel really uncomfortable and I stopped watching them because I recognized that it was kind of fueling ill will that I had. So I was like, eh, I don't need to add to any ill will I might have in politics. 
A final tactic that the Buddha discusses uh, is tends to be abandoned by developing. And here's where we all are. Developing mindfulness leading to enlightenment factors. So we're trying to get free um, of stress and suffering here. We're doing it through mindfulness. So this was the encouragement to develop this. So one way I look at, I mean, you can tell this is, this short little sutta has 10 tons of information. And um, one way I look at all that rich content is as a roadmap for how to counter despair, overwhelm, immobility with anything that's causing individual suffering, social injustice, political suffering, environmental suffering. As, you know, all these sources of stress and suffering. By the way, the sutta does not say be passive and apathetic. (laughs) Uh, Not about your practice, It says, you know, really be on it. Really know and see. Really pay appropriate attention. Don't pay inappropriate attention. Really start with the fundamentals. And then use all these means. Seeing, using, removing, restraining, abandoning, developing. So if how you are with anything is how you are with everything, activism of any sort, whether it's internal action to clean up your own act, to clean up your own mind and body, or outer action. It begins with the practice of paying, knowing and seeing, paying appropriate attention and not paying inappropriate attention to anything that stirs up, contaminates, or pollutes one's own mind. Cultivating this practice and awareness of actions and consequences until you know and see the actions that cause harm to you and others and those that cause benefit, um, you can learn to restrain the six senses, use only what's needed, endure what's unpleasant, avoid what's harmful, remove arisen thoughts and sense desires that are unhelpful, and further develop in mindfulness. So... I take inspiration from this that each of us taking full responsibility for what's happening in the mind will, and and paying attention to these workings of sense desires, also uh, becoming and ignorance, if you're interested in looking more deeply into the sutta, um, will change the world by example, by the influence that we have through our actions and how we are. I was attracted to this practice by three people who seemed different than other people, but it, what was different was about, th- about them was how they were. It was so striking. So this gives us a possibility to move towards more freedom and sustainability for ourselves and for others. And even if you're one of those people who says, okay, these are the end days, this is it, we've we've blown it, we've passed the point of no return, how are you going to be during those days? How are you going to be towards yourself? How are you going to be towards other people and other creatures? So my hope for us, all of us, is that this practice of paying attention, knowing and seeing, and being with our own minds... Um, will 
emanate out from you, radiate out from you to all the people in your life and you'll become one of those people that someone sees and thinks, wow, there's something different about them. There's some compassion or some beautiful thing about that. And in that way, we'll be a wonderful resource for other people around us as well as living freer, happier lives. So I wish you all peace and happiness. And if I made any mistakes in my interpretation of this sutta, that's my fault. And, um, you know, maybe some of you who know the suttas better will let me know if I goofed. Um, but it's, it's really been a pleasure to study this and share it with you this morning.